This is the Coalition of Christ-Exalting Churches, a network of churches in Northern California that are working together to advance the gospel by strengthening one another and planting new churches. Go to coalitioncec.org to find out more information about how you can help. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is going to finish out our fall workshop, which featured Dr. John Street and the topic of biblical reconciliation. Uh, today we will be doing the Q&A portion from that conference. Um, if you haven't already, go back and listen to the first three uh, lectures on that. The first one was um, Getting to the Heart of Conflict. Number two was Repentance Towards Reconciliation. And then part three was Forgiveness and Humility and how all of that plays into uh, the process of biblical reconciliation. One thing that Dr. Street said that really stood out to me from this conference was that when you, um, when you reconcile as believers, your relationship should be better afterwards than it ever was before. And so that's the hope when you finish a biblical reconciliation process. So anyway, very inspiring Inspiring to me. It really gave me some things I need to think about in leading people in my own church. Now, um, as you listen to this Q&A, some of the questions will do have to do with biblical reconciliation, and some of them will have to do with just uh, pastoral leadership in general. I'm asking the questions, and uh, you'll notice a lot of ums and ahs in it, and uh, please forgive me for that, but if you can get past that, the, the answers that Dr. Street gives are just pure gold. So with, uh, with all of that, have a great time listening to this Q&A. So the way we're going to format this um, Q&A this afternoon is uh, you've submitted some questions. I've tried to arrange them in a certain logical flow, and, uh, and I will kind of, um, <coughs> I will try to, um, I'll have my own questions that I'll insert in there as well to try to help the conversation. And then if we get through enough, which we'll see, um, we will, uh, we'll ha- we have a, flow, a wireless mic that we can throw out there to different questions, okay? So, but I'm going to give preference to the guys that that submitted the questions ahead of time, okay? So, the first uh, question is, um, what does it look like to faithfully shepherd your congregation? So, our church, so so I'm going to do it in this flow. I want to ask about shepherding in general and then kind of drill down on the specific topic of reconciliation, but what does it look like to faithfully shepherd your congregation? Our church has a ratio of 40 members for every one elder how can we have a good conscience that we're faithfully fulfilling our role to shepherd the flock? How do you how do you help these guys think about their role when it seems so overwhelming? Right. Yeah, that is uh, that is a question that comes up quite frequently, and uh, I've, I often debate exactly how to answer that because there are so different, so many different types of church situations. One of the ways that I, when we planted a church in Ohio back in 1985, one of the things that I found very successful for me was um, bringing my elders in on ministry situations as much as possible. Um, In other words, I didn't assume that they knew how to really shepherd the flock. They probably had heard things and I didn't assume that. I wanted to work with them. So anytime that I had a counseling session, I would have one or two elders sit in on that counseling session. And they would just observe. And uh, after they've set in on 25, 30 hours of counseling, they're starting to get a handle on, hey, I know what to do. Here, I, I know what to do, at least on some of the less difficult issues. And I wanted to model that for them so that when they went out to the different, we had different flocks in our congregation, different uh, segments of it, and those, by the way, those still exist in that church today, that they knew exactly what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to handle it. I think the senior pastors got to model it 
Um, so you, you can't just do a class and teach them how <laughs> Well, you can if you want to do a lot of, uh, you know, a content delivery, if you think that that's what the elders need. Um, but the, ma- the main thing was modeling. Um, I, I wanted them to see this is what they needed to do and just observe and then ask questions about it. Now, later on, then we had an elder training program, and it consisted of 12 weeks, which introduced them to what an elder was and what an elder was supposed to do that was a more formal class. And um, and incidentally, I gave them a test before they started the class, and I gave them a test at the end. I wanted to know if they were learning anything. And anybody who was, any man who was a member of our congregation could take that. That didn't mean that they were going to become an elder. But any man who could, in the congregation, could take it. And, um, and a lot of men said, you know, I'm not really interested in being an elder, but I want to know about this. So they took the class. Um, that was the first class. Then there was a, another class that we offered that was after that. You couldn't get into the other class until you had taken the first one. And that basically went for 12 weeks, and it covered 12 different major doctrines. And it met usually about once every other week for about two to three hours. And we'd cover a major doctrine, and with each doctrine, each of the elders had a whole list of things they needed to read, a whole list of questions they needed to answer. We tested them at the beginning. We tested them at the end see how well they knew so they so I knew they knew how to handle the scriptures well that was such a key thing um, I, I wanted to make sure that they knew how to do that so um, that was the formal stuff the other part was the more informal where we scheduled the men Mondays was usually counseling day Monday started at nine o'clock in the morning and went until 10 o'clock at night and most of that day, we were counseling every hour and a half until, and that became a tradition in the church, until every single Sunday school room was filled with elders or a woman who was well-trained in counseling was actually doing counseling. So to the, the last few years I was in the church, I did hardly any counseling within our church. I didn't do any counseling in our church. If I did counseling, it was usually a really difficult issue that came from another church. Because the church had been brought up to counsel itself from the Word of God, and that then it was taken then it was taken care of, and the elders were the ones who ultimately modeled it. So you mentioned counseling. Can you talk about that briefly? It sounds like you had the expectation that if you're an elder, you're involved in counseling to some absolutely. Degree. Okay, absolutely. That's exactly that's a great question because that's what Acts twenty says. I mean, grab your Bible and go over to Acts twenty just for a moment. You can see this. I mean. Um, an elder is not primarily a executive decision maker. An elder is a minister in the flock. Acts 20 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul's handing the mantle of ministry over to the Ephesian elders. And he says to the elders, he says, basically, I want you to follow my model, what he modeled for them. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. There was a public proclamation of the word of God and then there was a house to house private proclamation of the word of God that constituted counseling. Now, how do we know that? Because you skip down to verse 31. Verse 31, Paul says, therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That word admonish is the word nuthatao, which means to warn, to instruct, to counsel. He said, for a period of three years, I did not cease to counsel each one, not each group or each flock, each one with tears. And Paul was a man's man. I mean, he had been bit, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, whipped. Uh, he was a man's man. But he was not so thick-skinned that other people's problems didn't move him to tears. He could sit and work with people, and their problems moved him to see tears. That, that's direct involvement in people's lives. 
And, and he sets himself up as a model. He says to the Ephesian elders, this is what I expect you to do. This is what you should be doing among the flock because that was the last time you were ever going to see them on this earth. It was a very tearful farewell. And, and then Paul left them. So you can see that that's the expectation. So, so what if a guy just says, well, I'm just not really gifted with that. I, I'll teach Sunday school and show up at elders' meetings occasionally. But you, well, that person wouldn't be an elder in our church. All right, if you're if you're not gifted at helping, I mean, you don't have to be gifted. Nowhere in the Bible does that ever say that there's a gift of counseling. Uh, counseling, even if it were a gift, it would probably be like evangelism. Everybody's expected to do it, and some people are really gifted at it. But it's not a gift. It's it's a learned skill. And it's a burden that gets placed on a man who really has a heart for God and wants to help people. That, that, that simple, you know, I think every person, every guy counsels, most of the counseling goes on in the church is very informal. And either you're counseling according to what the Bible says you should be counseling, or you're counseling just off the top of your head, whatever. So that would, when first somebody says, when an elder, a guy aspires to the office of elder, it's a noble work that he aspires to. That's the work that he's yeah. talking about. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Um, okay. So with that, that seems super overwhelming, right? To a lot of guys, right? You're working full time. You got, you know, all this stuff, and then you have all these church emails trying to decide what color to paint the walls and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. How do you? How do you balance? How, how does a guy? Reasonably, what should be his conscience in terms of how much time he has to give to these things versus yeah. family issues, other you know, other things? How yeah. much should it absorb? Well, obviously, that I mean, you can't be a real elder. You, you're not qualified to minister in the church unless your family they're, they're your first priority. Your wife, your children, your first priority that that needs to be there, and it's got to be held as a priority. The church is not an excuse to ignore your wife or your family just the opposite. In fact, the rest of the church would key off of the way that you're living with your family and treating your wife. And and they're watching you. They're watching you. And they're, they end up doing the same thing that you do. I mean, after all, you're supposed to be godly in your conduct. If they consider you to be a godly person, they're going to imitate what you do. And you want to make sure that you hold them as top priority in your life, only second to God himself. Then the church and your ministry comes along. Now, we had a rule in our church where an elder wasn't allowed to um, do anything except for one other major um, ministry in the church. For example, if he was an elder, he could sing in the choir, but he couldn't do anything else. Not teach Sunday school class, not do anything else if he was going to do a proper... uh, Or if he was an elder, he could teach Sunday school class. Then he wasn't allowed to do anything else because being an elder is way more than just being an executive decision maker. All right? That's just once a month you get together and have an elder meeting and decide what you're going to paint the walls. But, um, no, no, no. It, it's, being an elder means ministry among the flock. That's really such a key area, and you've got to be willing to do that. All right? I mean, to the point where in our church when I was in Ohio, and I just came out of an elders meeting down at Grace Community Church, this weekend, the vast majority of the time that we spend in our elders' meetings is talking about shepherding issues. We're not talking about money or... We're talking about shepherding issues. That's the vast majority of the time. We're talking about people, certain problems that people are having, struggles and difficulties, marriages that are seem to be in crisis situations, those kind of issues. So the majority of our elders' meetings become something like that. So here's a really good question in light of that. So how can leaders set a godly and healthy expectation for the congregation so it doesn't lead to frustration in terms of an elder's involvement? You know, what's, what's the right expectation to set? Well, I'm not sure you can really set that in your congregation. No matter who it is that comes to your congregation, they're going to come with a whole different set of expectations you can model the right thing and then you got to let let the word uh, the word work in people's lives in terms of expectations um, remember how I said expectations are seed beds to idols 
they can have an image of what they want an elder to be, and it may not be a biblical image at all. Elder means that if you're really going to care for me, you're going to be over helping paint my house this week, all right? Well, you know, even though that may be something that you may want to help a person with, that's not necessarily your primary job as an elder. Your primary job is focused in on their spiritual needs, their spiritual needs. That's where you're zeroed in on. You're affixed on that issue. And, and you're, you're zeroed in. You're, you're, you've got your radar up for people that are in trouble, um, depressed, fearful, angry. Um, why? Why are they that way? And you're coming alongside saying, hey, brother, hey, I notice you've been kind of a little bit short-tempered lately. What's going on? Is everything okay? I want to help. Can I help you? Can I help you? That's what an elder does. They're, all, they're always out among the flock. They're always doing that kind of thing. Um, again, elders are not executive decision makers primarily. They may have to make executive decisions. But I think too many board members think that that's what they do. They, they spend their time making executive decisions. Ah, that's really a small part of the ministry from a biblical perspective. Okay, so uh, one last question on the the training of elders, and we'll get into the reconciliation uh, content. But uh, what would you say, um, so we have, I know specifically there's situations we've got pastors overwhelmed with the burden. They're trying to shepherd the flock. Uh, They've got maybe one elder, two elders, uh, and they need more. What would your caution be to that to that? That pastor and those elders, yeah, yeah. They, they're weighted with so many responsibilities and they need help. Yeah. How, what would your caution be to them? Yeah, obviously, as Paul warns, we can't lay hands on hastily a person. Boy, I cannot tell you how many situations I've been involved in when a wrong kind of guy was put in eldership. And it's, uh, it's a disaster. It just wreaks all kinds of problems in the church. He doesn't have the right motivations. He's not doing it for the right reasons. He thinks somehow he deserves. I remember we had a guy in our church who had a very successful local business. And he, in fact, he had several U.S. patents. Nobody else had. And and he was making man, money hand over fist. And um, he had been a Christian for many years and uh, started attending our church. And he made it known to the rest of the leadership in the church that he was expecting us to ordain him as an elder. <laughs> well, the bad part about that was I had counseled some of the people that was a part of his company, and he treated the people in his company horribly. In fact, I had, tre- I had counseled some of his family members, family members that were a part of his company, and they confirmed everything. And so I had to sit down with the guy and say, you know, there's no way that you're ever going to be an elder in our church as long as this is going on. And I laid it out for him, and he just got really upset. Well, I'm not going to be a part of this church. You know, he gave a lot of money to church. I mean, if I was looking for money, I always said, oh, no, no, that's fine. Let's stay there. We'll do that, you know, type of thing. He said, no, you know, the Lord is the one who gives the the church, and he's the one that takes away, so... No, we had to make a stand there, you know, and I communicated that to him as lovingly as I could, as caringly. In fact, I communicated within the context, let me help you spiritually with this, all right, so that people don't view you as an ogre or as some kind of autocrat and, 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 nope, not interested in that, not interested. And he walked away from it. Um, So you don't want to lay hands on someone prematurely, but... A pastor who really does need help, the best way you can do that is by cultivating it. And, you know, this is not an easy do this, one, two, three, and then you're going to have elders. It's not it. It takes work. It takes time, sometimes years, to do this. And you, I know you need the help now. I, kn- I know that that's the issue. But you can only do what you can do and then leave the rest of the Lord. I, I, I've said this many times to our elders and and I still say it today, listen, people have lots and lots of problems, more problems you'll ever be able to deal with. They didn't get into those problems overnight, and they're not going to get out of them overnight, all right? 
They didn't get into them overnight, and they're not going to get out of them. So you have to handle them in order, as prioritize. There's real serious problems here, so I'm going to prioritize them. I'm going to deal with those particular problems first. Then I'm less of a priority, and I'm going to deal with those particular issues a little bit later. So you've got to prioritize what you think is really, really important, deal with them, and then give everyone else books or something to read or Bible passages to read in the meantime until you can get to them or get an elder that's trained enough to work with them. That, that's what you're going to have to do. And it's it's going to take time, but you've got to invest in the men in your church in raising up elders. Um, what I realized is that our elder training program um, kind of set a bar in our church, and all the men in the church saw that bar. And it really helped a lot of guys who would never be elders, but they wanted to attain to the bar. That bar, this is what you should be in your home. It kind of set that bar in the church, and that helped out tremendously. Okay, Uh, obviously there's many more questions in terms of the practicalities of that, but um, maybe we'll leave... Will you, are you too tired to hang around afterwards and interact with a few of those questions? <laughs> no, I, no I, I'm fine. You sure? Okay, I put yeah, you on yeah. the spot? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. <clears throat> Anything from my son-in-law. <laughs> yes. All right. So, um, all right. So getting into the conflict resolution uh, content, um, what, you mentioned this a little bit. Maybe, maybe get into this a little bit more. What do you do when the other party involved in the conflict doesn't want to pursue reconciliation? Yeah, which is a very common question. I'm glad somebody asked it. Um, you do everything you can. You go and try to resolve that. They're not interested. They're not interested in talking with you at all. Now, again, let me emphasize, you do everything you can to make it easy for that to happen. Um, but if that doesn't happen, then this goes over, grab your Bible, go over to Romans 12. Paul gives very clear indications here of what needs to happen. Um, when he says um, in verse 18, uh, if possible, in other words, sometimes it's not possible, so far as it depends upon you, sometimes it doesn't depend upon you, be at peace with all men. All right? In other words, you've done everything you can. And remember how I took you over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 19, where sometimes um, divisions within the church are a part of God's design. No matter what you do, it can't be resolved. Now, I think it's false for us to jump to that conclusion early about somebody when we don't really try to do it. That's really a bad thing to do. But let's assume that you've really tried everything that you can do in order to resolve that issue with that other party and just nothing works. Well, then you've got to commit it to the Lord. And um, so if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, in other words, you're piling on goodness. That's what you're doing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what you need to do with a person who just refuses to reconcile with you. My uh, oldest daughter, Krista, years ago when she was in third grade, she would get on the bus and go to school. And um, there was a girl that was older. She was in fourth or fifth grade. For some reason, took it upon herself to make Christmas, Krista's life miserable. And she would knock the books out of her arms. She, Krista would have her homework, and she'd take a pen and write all over her homework so it was all messed up. It, she would do all kinds of goofy, stupid things on the bus to her. Just pick on her. And, uh, you know, Kristen would come home, and she'd be crying and... And so we'd sit and talk with her and um, about, you know, committing this to the Lord and these kind of things. And the other girl's name was Rachel. And um, 
One day, Krista came home and she was in tears. And Krista was always tall for her age. She was a big gal. So as a human father, I wanted to say to Krista, you know what, when Rachel sits behind you on the bus, just turn around and just once really good, and she won't do that anymore. All right? My wife jumps in on this, and she goes, this is an opportunity to overcome evil with good. Oh, my God. You want to use the Bible now. And so she and my wife baked up this big plate of chocolate chip cookies, really good. And Krista and I walked two blocks up the road to Rachel's house, and I stayed on the sidewalk, and Krista walked up to the door and knocked on the door, and of all people in the house, Rachel came to the door, and she looked really surprised to see Krista there. Krista said, you know, my family and I were making some chocolate chip cookies, and we thought you and your family would like these here. And I'm watching Rachel from the side over there, and she looks like, she's looking at this like it's a bomb. (laughs) You know, like, whoa. You know, and Krista said, have a good evening, and then she walked back, and so on the way home, I say, you know, this may not do anything in regards to Rachel, but you did the right thing, and God's really pleased with you. You know, you're overcoming evil with goodness type of thing. I'm going to make a long story short. Rachel started treating Krista differently, and later on, they started to become really good friends, and Rachel's family started coming to church, and Rachel's mom and dad got saved, and it was incredible, and so did Rachel, and they eventually moved away to Wisconsin, and Krista, for years afterwards, would get letters signed, your best friend, Rachel. Now, I don't think, you know, it's always going to happen when you do good to those who are doing bad to you. In other words, those who who refused to reconcile. That's not always going to happen. But that's part of heaping on good. That, that's it. You, you think of a way that I can heap on good on that person. And, and 1 Peter 3 is very clear that who is going to harm you if you prove zealous in doing good? That's a great question. Who is going to harm you if you prove zealous in doing good? But even, and then in the next verse he says, but even if you do suffer for doing good, You are blessed. In other words, the Lord graces you. That's the word that's used there in the Greek. He graces you. Even if you do. And of course, Proverbs is very clear about those who return evil for good, evil will not depart from their house. So that says there are malicious people that even though you do them good, they still are going to do evil things back to you. That's just the way it is. But evil will not depart from their house. That's a special type of people. So really quick, um, say someone in the church, and interpersonally you're to do them good, but they don't want to reconcile with yeah. you. Does that, from a leadership standpoint, does that become a church discipline issue? Oh, great issue? question. Okay. Yeah, it has the potential to do that. Especially when they don't reconcile, then Matthew 18 comes in, you bring one or two, especially the elders of the church together, let them try to ferret out what's going on between the two. And if they say, no, they're right, they've sinned against you, and um, then then it becomes the next step in the church discipline process. And then that person is acting like an unbeliever, so you have to treat them like an unbeliever and put them out of the church. Even though they can profess until they're blue in the face that they're a believer, it doesn't matter. Um, they're acting like an unbeliever, so you have to treat them that way. Um, okay, so then this question comes about when someone had a question about the the love covers a multitude of sin. Yeah, um, uh, he said it wasn't clear to him what you what was meant by that from what you had said. So um, it means to deal with the sin. Yeah, biblically, right? So yeah, th- that particular statement. What I was trying to say is this: most Christians read that as to cover a sin means to ignore it, look the other way, act as if it didn't happen. All right, that's not what covering means in the Bible. Covering in the Bible means you are actively involved in the forgiveness reconciliation process. Practicing love means you practice forgiveness. That's what it means. Practicing love means you practice forgiveness. And I showed you in um, uh, Psalm 32, verse 1, uh, Psalm 85, uh, 82 verse 5, Psalm 82 verse 5, um, about the fact that in Hebrew parallelism there, 
Covering a sin means practicing forgiveness. Covering a sin means practicing forgiveness, not ignoring it. And James 5 kind of makes this really clear, right? 519, Mm -hmm. my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Yeah, yeah. That's real love is getting involved to turn them from sin, right? All right, so... um, all right, so um, here, let me see here. We've got a few minutes, so we'll go as quick as we can through some of these questions. So in biblical reconciliation, biblical discipline, how do you treat someone who strongly professes to be a Christian, yet you, don't, you obviously don't see any fruit of that profession? Do you treat him as a professing Christian or as an unbeliever? Um, if they refuse to reconcile and you've done everything that you can, then you have to treat him like an unbeliever. Yeah, it's not, you don't treat them, I mean, they can profess till they're blue in the face, but that's, that's meaningless that they don't deal with sin in their life. Yeah, that's assuming you've gone through a discipline process with them, right? Yeah, yeah, you've yeah. walked through them, with them, yeah, okay. yeah, So yeah. if they make a profession of faith, you treat them on the basis of that profession, right, Until, and then you, but if they are walking in sin, then you walk through that process. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I've had this happen a number of times in counseling. I had a woman years ago who had a husband who was um, six and nine. He was a big guy, and he wanted to play NBA basketball, but he wasn't coordinated enough. He played college ball a little bit, but he was a big, angry guy, and had a short little wife, and uh, she was sweet as can be, loved the Lord. And this guy was just a big, angry guy. And um, I remember in one counseling session I had with him, I thought he was going to bring down all the bookcases in my office. I was just going to bring them on. He got so animated, so angry. And I said to him, listen, you're not angry at me. You're angry at God. This is what God said. All I'm doing is showing you what the Bible says. That's all I'm doing. And you're upset about what the Bible says. Why are you upset about what the Bible says? What's really going on in your life? But in this particular case, this guy pulled that kind of thing. He kept saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And he could articulate the essentials of the gospel. He could do that. He could articulate. But there was nothing in his life other than his ability to be able to rotely repeat the essentials of the gospel that said that he was a believer. And so my counsel to his wife was, listen, you need to live out 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 every day with this guy, all right, because that is a Christian woman married to primarily an unbelieving wife. The way you win him over is without words by the behavior of your life. You don't put repent in the bottom of his beer can, all right? That's not the way you win him over to righteousness, all right? Without words, it says, you win him over without words by the behavior of your life. And that's what she was committed to do. She wanted to do that. So, Okay, yeah. a similar question that kind of adds to that. When should we look for fruit as part of reconciliation? Um, when should we look for fruit as part of reconciliation? First of all, when a person has sinned against us and then we've forgiven them, it's not... We're not looking for fruit. We're just going to assume and hope that fruit appears. Now, we may notice it. I I think my problem is with the word terminologies that's there. We may notice fruit. For example, they're willing to make restitution. They're willing to practice genuine reconciliation. They regret. Remember those three things that we talked about? They regret having done the sin in the first place. All of that is very evident effect or fruit of a person who's been genuinely repentant. Um, so now, now that's, now I'm talking interpersonally. Does like an elder, a group of elders, can they inspect fruit? Yes, I think based upon Hebrews 13, they can. You know, are, is there real fruit and make a judgment to help people in the church, like helping a wife who has an ungodly husband who still claims to be a Christian you know, then the elders can come in and say, we don't see any fruit in this man's life, you know, and then they remove him out of the church 
then they have a responsibility. But interpersonally, I don't have that responsibility. So that relates to this next question. Uh, They say, please speak to James. It's not really a question. It's more of a command. Please speak to James 4, 11 through 12, just specifically in regard to judging a brother. Yeah. Um, When he's talking about that, you remember earlier in James, we talked about this in James 4, 1 about what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it those desires to do battle within? Then he talks about the importance of humility. And he says, submit yourself unto God um, and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humble yourself before the Lord. That is the prerequisite before that statement in terms of judgment. And I think that James is using that judgment in the same way that Jesus does in uh, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, where Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that you can't use judgment. He wasn't saying that because we have to use judgment all the time. Jesus trains us to use judgment. He's saying, he says, don't judge lest you be judged in, this, in the measure that is that you measure out, the same measure will be added to you. And then he says, why do you go around taking out, and the Greek word there is particles, how, why do you take little particles out of people's eyes when all along you have a log hanging out of your eye? That's a great question. Why do you go around? Imagine th- that little word particle is the same word as like we, we would say today a floaty. You ever have a floaty in your eye? You know, a little piece of dust, and you go, uh-huh. what if I came to you and I said, I see that little floaty. Let me help you get that out of your eye. And all along, I have this log. This is hyperbole here. Log hanging out of my eye. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Get, go, go deal with your log first, all right? The, Jesus was not saying you can't judge other people. He's saying you can't judge other people with a measure you first don't use upon yourself. That's the issue. You have to use that on yourself. And this is exactly what was going on in the Jerusalem church that James is addressing here, where they were judging other people with a stricter judgment than they were using upon their own lives. And that, that became a problem. It's an interesting question, and um, I'm sure there's quite a bit of background to it, but how can you work towards reconciliation with people that you think the Bible tells you to avoid? Uh, for example, Romans 16 um, and First Corinthians six, um, I think what divisive people. Um, let me look that up. Almost like Second um, Peter or Second Timothy two. Second Timothy two avoid such men as these. Uh, when 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 Paul is saying that. I always take that to mean these are the type of people that are disciplined out of the church. Hmm. All right? You can't avoid somebody that's an active member of the church. You can't do that. Um, But those people that have been clearly identified by the churches, that person's acting like the world, and so we judge them to be a part of the world. And then you avoid that kind of a person. You don't hang around them. And, and in fact, I think that you can see this. There's, there's kind of three categories of people, and Paul outlines that in 1 Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he talks about, if you want to grab your Bible and go over to 1 Corinthians 5, he says, um, he says, obviously, we're supposed to have a good relationship with other Christians, um, and we're supposed to be out in the world and having relationships with people in the world so we can win them over to Christ. But there's a third category. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of redemption. Um, And then in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Why? Because we're trying to evangelize them. We can associate with them. Or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, uh, for then you uh, would have to go out of the world. No. But actually, I wrote to you 
not to associate with any, here it is, so-called brother, if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Don't even fellowship with them. For what I what have I to do with uh, judging outsiders? Uh, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. The implication is there's three categories of people. There are people in right standing with God. There are people in the world. And then there's a third category of people who want to be a part of the church, and yet they act like the world. The third category is the people you don't associate with. All right? In other words, when you withdraw that fellowship, what that does is that they feel the pain and the hurt of that discipline, and they need to feel that. So we used to instruct people when we did church discipline, we would say to the congregation, okay, if um, Sister Susan calls you up and says, hey, listen, I'd like to go shopping with you this afternoon. You need to say to Sister Susan, uh, you know, Susan, there's nothing better I would love to do, but first we've got to deal with this issue. You've got to deal with this sin in your life and repent and make things right and get back with the church. I can't have fellowship. I can't go with you and do this. I can't go fishing with you. I can't go playing golf with you. I can't do any of that until this thing is made right. That has to be. There's that third category of people that you avoid. You don't avoid people in the world, but you avoid pretenders. Really important question here. Is Kanye West's latest album, Jesus is King, legitimate Christian music? (laughs) I knew there's always one in the crowd. (laughs) They wrote, just kidding. They're not being serious. I'm sure they really wonder that. Incidentally, you know, you need to pray about that because uh, the pastor of Placerita Bible Church there next to the Masters University, um, <laughs> I got to tell you a quick story. This summer, he, Adam, the pastor of Placeria Baptist Church, went on vacation. So he asked me if I'd come and preach in his service while he was on vacation. So I did. I went and preached. So after it was all over with, um, a lady came up to me and she says, By the way, you know who was here? I said, No. She said, Kanye West was here. I said, In the service? She said, Yeah. I said, Who's Kanye West? <laughs> I had no clue, absolutely zero clue who this was. Who's Kanye West? And she goes, "Um, well, um, he's a famous rapper. And I go, okay. All right, so on the way home, I said to my wife, you know who Kanye West is? Yeah, yeah, I've kind of heard. Can you look him up on on your phone and see who this guy is and stuff? And so she looked at him, oh, he's the husband of Kim Kardashian. I said, Really? And so he was there in the, in the church. But he's been attending Placerita off and on. And Adam has a weekly discipleship with Kanye, which is really a cool thing. But you pray about that because there are so many people in his ears, all right, because of his popularity and, and well-known. There's just so many, so many bad churches, bad theology people are in his ear. But Adam has a unique opportunity, so pray for Adam on this so okay so the real question is is there yeah. is there a distinction between biblical counseling and biblical therapy is it kosher as in is it um, is it okay under Old Testament standards <laughs> to advise someone in the church to get therapy <laughs> well I don't know exactly what you're referring to specifically about therapy if you're talking about psychological therapy, um, I don't know. I don't know what the need of that is because it's supposedly attempting to deal with soul problems, and there's nothing better that deals with soul problems than the scriptures. The scripture and the truth deals with soul problems. Why would you want to ever turn somebody that's really hurting over to somebody who doesn't know how to handle the scriptures? Why would you ever want to do that? All right, um, that that is something that radi- I think a lot of that depends upon. What, how you view the sufficiency of the Word of God and the superiority of the Word of God over every psychological system in the world. 
Is the Bible sufficient and superior to everything else in the world in, in dealing with soul problems? Now, the Bible's not a textbook on mathematics, even though when it speaks in that way, it speaks accurately and authoritatively. It's not a textbook on biology, even though when it speaks in that area, it speaks authoritatively and accurately. It's not a textbook on astronomy, even though when it speaks in those areas, it speaks authoritatively and accurately. But it is a textbook about the human soul. And it knows far better, God's truth is far better at equipped to dealing with it. And that doesn't mean that no, everybody knows how to use the Bible well. And that's why I really encourage you to get good training in biblical counseling. If you're going to be a good elder or a good pastor, you need good training in biblical counseling. Um, so that you know how to use the Word of God effectively to address those soul-type problems. So there is no such thing as biblical therapy. There's just a biblical approach to dealing with problem and a secular approach to dealing with problem. And there are some who use the Bible as kind of a, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a veneer on the outside of a secular theory. Or it's, um, it's basically the framework of dealing with the problem is a secular anthropology and a secular view of man and then you hang some Bible verses on the external external part of that, and that supposedly makes it biblical. No, it doesn't make it biblical. Why? Because cults use the Bible all the time, and they use verses. Um, Christian psychology is a philosophy. It's not a science. Even secular psychology is not a science. It's based upon co-variation, not causation. There's direct causation, cause and effect. Secular psychology is based upon co-variation. That is, causes that seem to be related to effects. There's a difference between the two, between strict science and co-variation. Huge, huge difference between the two. No, there's so much I could say about yeah, that. Yeah, a little class on that. Um, okay, and so that comes to this one question we'll we'll end here in a couple uh, maybe one last one after this but the role or validity of using antidepressants and other meds for psychological issues uses issues yeah um i'm very involved in biblical counseling i'm not anti-antidepressants um ssris which are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors but i realized the serious problems behind antidepressants, just like a lot of good secular research does. For example, you take an antidepressant, you're six times more likely to commit suicide or to do a violent act. Everybody knows that's hard science. That There's strong statistics about that. Um, now, I think that Antidepressants are an expression of God's common grace in the world because there are a lot of crazy people out there, all right? There there are. There are a lot of crazy people, and we don't have enough jails or padded cells to put these people in. So those antidepressants become a form of chemical handcuffs to keep people from doing bad things to themselves and bad things to other people. But... For the Christian who's committed to living for Christ to his honor and glory. And there's no biological, physiological reason or etiology behind a depressed state or a phobia or should they be taking antidepressants. I'm not going to encourage that. I'm going to say let's work this through. You, you, when you take a look at church history... Uh, one of my greatest heroes in church history is Augustine of Hippo. He, he was a super intelligent man. I think he was so intelligent. He was so way before his time, he'd make Einstein look like a fool. Uh, Augustine is incredibly intelligent man. I read everything, I've read everything that Augustine ever wrote. And yet he suffered with terrible depression in his life. There was no antidepressants in his day to deal with it. The only place he could go to was scriptures. You fast forward to Martin Luther during the Reformation. Martin Luther suffered from depression. There's a story about him in his sitting in a dark room one day, depressed, and his wife comes walking in, and she's donned in mourning clothes, a black veil and a black 
And he turns around and looks at her and he says, who died? And she said, you hadn't heard? No, who died? She said, God did. He said, God didn't die. She said, well, you're acting like he did. That's a great wife. You're acting like he died. And then you fast forward to Spurgeon. Spurgeon struggled for most of his life with gout, which is extremely painful. And one of the side effects of gout, at least persistent gout, is depression. I, I don't think, if, if, if there would have been antidepressants during the time of Augustine or Luther or Spurgeon, we wouldn't even know those guys' names. We wouldn't know them because they would have anesthetized themselves against those dark de- days rather than seeking God's truth through those dark days. Some of the greatest writings this Spurgeon ever did was on the Psalms, on the darker Psalms. And when you read his Psalms, you're going, whoa, how does he get this inside? This is because he had to walk through those dark valleys. He had to walk through them. And he didn't pop a pill to do that. That it just kind of anesthetizes us away from And by the way, there's a lot of research in the world that are trying to figure out why are so many people on antidepressants committing suicide. The theory is like this, that here's where a normal person would be. A person that's severely depressed is way down here, and when they're severely depressed, they don't care about life. There's so much emotional pain going on in their life, they think about suicide, but they don't have enough gumption to follow through with it. So you give an antidepressant that brings them up here, okay, Now they still think about suicide, but now they have enough gumption to follow through. And so then they follow through with the suicide. So the the world's trying to explain why is this phenomena going on? Why is this going on? So I, I just took a lot of scientific literature and summed it up for you. Thank you. It's true. It's yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we are we are over time, and uh, so I want to just uh, take a moment. Can we just thank Dr. Street? Uh, Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Coalition of Christ Exalting Churches. For more information about upcoming workshops or how to support us, go to coalitioncec.org.